Hello, and welcome to Out the Gate, the podcast about sailing and adventure on and around San Francisco Bay. I'm really excited to share today's interview because, well, I just had so much fun recording it. Today's guest, Tony Gooch, was born in Australia, but he's lived in Canada for years, first in Toronto and now in Victoria, British Columbia. We connected last week when he was here in San Francisco to welcome his friend, Randall Reeves, back from the epic single-handed figure eight voyage. Tony is no stranger to epic single-handed voyages, having been the very first person to ever complete a solo non-stop circumnavigation from the west coast of North America. Now, he did this in the early 2000s aboard his 44-foot aluminum cutter, Ta'anui. Ta'anui is now called Moli and is the very same boat that Randall used in his trip. Tony and I talked about that, about Randall's trip, the boat which belonged to both men, and we also covered the many miles that Tony sailed with his wife all over the world, first in a 29-foot Dufour Arpege, then in Ta'anui. We talk about some hairier moments at sea they face together, advice on heavy weather sailing, and Tony's thoughts about his own solo circumnavigation 20 years ago now. So let's jump right in. Tony, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I'm really excited to have this conversation. Let's start with what brought you here to San Francisco. Well, the reason I came down is because my old boat, which was when I had it, was called Tainui, has been sailed for the last year uh, or more, but last year by Randall Reeves. He left here a little over a year ago to complete a what he was calling... Uh, Project Figure 8, which was to sail from San Francisco south to Cape Horn, around the Southern Ocean, back to Cape Horn, up the Atlantic, through the Northwest Passage, and back to San Francisco. An almost epic, unheard of idea. And I mean, no one's actually ever thought about doing this before, let alone having done it. And uh, he, he pulled it off. And so I wanted to come down here to welcome him home, shake his hand, and also because uh, I recently retired as the Vice Commodore of the Ocean Cruising Club, and on behalf of the club, I wanted to present him with a congratulatory plaque, which I did, and tell him well done. It was a great day yesterday. Uh, you know, I presume it was typical San Francisco weather. <laughs> it was cold. <laughs> a bit of fog, a bit of overcast. A bit of fog and a great turnout of the Sausalito Yacht Club. So it was fun. So that's why I came down here. Of course, now we're sitting in bright sunshine of course. the day following. So <laughs> that's also typical of San Francisco. It can change moment to moment, day to day. That's right. But you not only have been following Randall's uh, adventure because he was using what was once your boat, but yeah. you have also s struck up a very close friendship with him. Well, this is true. I mean, when he, uh, just backing up a little bit, in order to gain experience uh, for this trip, in 2014, Randall sailed through the Northwest Passage on another boat. And while he was doing that, he saw my old boat being sailed in the Northwest Passage 
by the people to whom I sold the boat in, uh, I think, 2012, if I remember correctly. He'd been looking around for a good boat. He saw it and thought, I'm going to get that boat. He got in contact with the Bainbridges, who owned the boat. The boat was then in Seward, Alaska, and he bought it in Seward, Alaska. When he got the boat, he then contacted me and said, I just bought your old boat. Can I mine your idea, your brain for your know, things about the boat, how it sails, the equipment? I said, oh, of course you can. You know, I'd be delighted to talk to you. So in 2016, he got the boat back to San Francisco. So I flew down here just to spend a week with him just talking about the boat and going over it and you know how things work and because uh, there's no manual on this boat it's a one-off boat and it's grown organically over the years as Randall said yesterday the owner's manual is Tony Gooch <laughs> <That's right>. yeah <laughs> and unfortunately I keep forgetting how does something work I can't remember <laughs> but uh, he did a very good job of putting the boat uh, together and getting it into really good shape for such an arduous trip the history is there. He, he set off in 2017, got smashed up in, uh, off uh, Cape Horn, coming down to Cape Horn, and uh, then got smacked up again in the Indian Ocean. So he had to give up on the whole trip, went back to San Francisco uh, in June of 2018, and three months later took off again to start all over again. Unreal. I mean, that takes an immense amount of determination. I mean, I and think. just over a year later, finished. There he comes back again. Comes, comes back. And he's probably still you know, shaking his head and trying to get used to the idea that he's on firm land and, uh, and he doesn't have to go and do something tomorrow morning. Well, you are one of the few people who probably can put yourself into that same mindset, into his shoes. Yeah. Talk about that transition coming back from a long solo circumnavigation and re-entering society, re-entering the world. <laughs> well, you know, I've, I've talked to Randall about this, and I remember saying to him, you, one of the first things you find out is that, as he did last night, I, I went to his house you know, with him. You know, he hadn't seen his house for a year, and I knew it would be exactly the way it was. He walks in, and nothing's changed. No, somebody's cleaned some shrubs out of the garden. He noticed it. But you come back a year later, and it seems like nothing's changed in the meantime. You have to sort of start again and pick it up. You also find that everybody wants to talk to you about the trip. Uh, in three days' time, your history. You remember it. You remember all the details of it, but for the most part... People now don't remember the trip, but they do remember, you're Randall Reeves, you're the guy that sailed around the southern... I mean, forever, he's going to be that. You're the guy that did that. He will in, enjoy that, uh, I did, because at least you were doing something that you enjoyed that people remember you for, as opposed to something you shouldn't have done. <laughs> and, <laughs> Better that than the alternative. <laughs> that's right. But uh, the world looks a bit different, um, and you start to miss the ocean. I predict that in about two or three months' time, he's going to think, uh, what, what, my, what, what could I do now? What's my next adventure? Can I get back out to sea again? And uh, I don't think Joe is going to be particularly <laughs> enamored with me suggesting that he wants to go back out to sea again. But he, he'll start thinking that. You know, he'll, 
he'll clean up the boat, he'll repair the stuff that's broken, although it's actually in pretty good shape, but just needs a lot of TLC. I'm sure he'll give it to it, but then he'll, he'll, he'll get on with it, you know, and uh, he'll stop worrying about, not worrying, he'd just be dreaming more than anything else. Does that ever go away? Uh, well, it was, uh, it's 20 years since I sailed or did my nonstop circumnavigation. So, um, no, it doesn't go away, actually. Um, I, last year, I helped a friend uh, deliver a boat from Tonga down to New Zealand. Well, he didn't actually need me to come, but he knew I wanted to go and do an ocean trip. So he said, do you want to ride? <laughs> and I said, sure. And, you know, it was a great ride, and we got some good sailing in, and I loved it, you know. But, you know, now I'm getting a bit older, and, you know, maybe I'm not as, <laughs> as keen to go and bash myself around as I used to. <laughs> but, it, no, the sea is a lovely place to go. Sailing is a, a lovely occupation, and, you know, uh, and particularly uh, the night time, when you're sailing in the open ocean, in the night, hopefully, you know, a bucket of stars all over the place. The, the waves are typically s smaller, uh, the boat starts to sing, and it's all calm and peaceful, and it, it's a beautiful way to spend your three-hour watch or whatever you're running. I enjoyed that on that last thing, and I remembered it from before, too. I know Randall likes night sailing, too. It's better than, well, I don't know whether it's better than day sailing, but it, it's a pleasure. <laughs> Looking back 20 years, the memories, everybody wants to talk about the exciting moments and the storms, the knockdowns. What to you, when you think back on it, are those moments that stick out for you? Oh, I, I, I don't remember those. You know, you know, you're right. Everybody wants to say... You know, and did, don't worry, we'll get to those moments. <laughs> <laughs> no, but those things pass. What, what does stay in your mind and what sort of surfaces again is um, the more pleasurable moments, the special uh, movement of the boat. You're running before the wind. Moldy, Randall's boat, my boat, you know, is rigged up to run before the trade winds. That's, that's how... It's set up. I mean, it can do other things. It can do a sail anywhere you want it, but that's what it's good at. And so you can set the boat up, and it's, uh, you know, say you've got, um, I don't know, force four or five behind you, and the boat is just on rails and just moving perfectly. Everything works. The self-steering works. Nobody, no, there's no strains. There's no hassles. The boat's just clocking off 150 every 24 hours or more. And uh, all's at peace with the world. And uh, you're swinging around. If you look around the horizon, there's some albatross. And the albatross, when they sail, you know, because uh, they actually almost sail. I, mean, I know they, they fly, but they look like they're sailing because they ride the wind. They, they come down onto the surface of the water and then catch the compressed air above a wave that lifts them back up again. And then they come down and do it again. They can sail like that without flapping a wing for hours, they're amazing to watch. And as they come up, they nearly always, particularly the wandering albatross, turn on their side so that you've got a cross. You know, they've got the seven-foot wingspan in the vertical and the body uh, in the, sorry, the wingspan is in the horizontal and the body is uh, in, the, in the vertical. And then they just roll over without any effort. It's their world. They can live like that. And, and it's, you sort of think when you're out there, well, that's, that's my world, too. That's, you know, I'm there, too. I can remember that. I can bring that back into my head just for fun anytime. <laughs> that's 
That's wonderful to have that. It seems to me that it is not a coincidence that both you and Randall named this boat after seabirds. Yep. Ta'anui. Ta'anui. In fact, you got it right. That's the New Zealand Maori way of saying the Gaga. Ta'anui. Okay. And it is the New Zealand Maori word for a bird called the, the white people call a flesh-footed shearwater, which is you know, a pretty ugly word. <laughs> Not quite as poetic <laughs> as Ta'anui. Not at all. And uh, a Ta'anui, or a flesh-footed shearwater, they, they nest on the Chatham Islands, which is on the western side of New Zealand, very remote. And every year they migrate north up into Alaska waters for food, and then they go back down again. So it's a true bird of the ocean. It's not an albatross. It's really a big petrel. So I named the boat that. And I put the symbol of the bird on the front of the boat. Randall, when he bought it, the boat had been renamed by the previous owners. Didn't like the name. He didn't like it either. So he wanted to name it after a bird, so he named it Moli, which is the Hawaiian native uh, name for a Lazan albatross which is the Lazan albatross is a big, not a bigger, not a really big albatross, but it's a big-sized one, and it lives in the northern hemisphere. It nests at the far end of the Hawaiian, uh, the, not the Hawaiian chain, the, uh, one of the big chains of islands in the North Pacific. Okay. <laughs> yeah. You and Randall both write quite a bit in your travels about birds, and you yeah. just spoke so poetically about watching them. Yeah. Is that... Well, out on the ocean, there's just you... A whole lot of ocean, 360 degrees, which is just glorious to have nothing for 360 degrees. It's an absolute privilege. <laughs> and there are animals, uh, mammals in the oceans, and occasionally you see a whale or a dolphin or whatever, and in the sky are the birds. These are your companions when you're out there on the ocean. These are who you're looking at. Both Randall and I were talking last night over a beer, and uh, we were talking about the albatross, but also about the little petrels, the leeches, petrels, and others that you know, make their living only on the ocean. They're there, you know, just in your wake. They dance on the water, feeding on plankton or whatever it is. And you can sit there, and I know he's done it. You sit there for an hour just, just looking at them, watching them. Constant companions out there. That's why. It's all you've got to look at. There's no television. <laughs> I want to get to your adventures in Ta'anui, but let's back up a moment and talk about how you got into sailing. Well, I had actually never sailed at all until I met my wife. And uh, I met her over in Europe. On a ski vacation. I was on a skiing vacation. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and we were just dancing one night, you know, and, and she, she said to me, well, do you, do you have a boat? You know, just by way of stupid conversation or conversation, I said, no. She said, oh, you should. Yeah. <laughs> and, and she had done quite a bit of sailing as a kid. And her parents, her dad, they had a boat as well. So anyway, we got married six weeks later and ended back in Canada. I had 1200 bucks. That's all we had between us. And we spent it uh, that month, that first month, on buying a Lightning, which is a Chicago designed three-man racing dinghy. And then I had to learn how to sail because <laughs> I, I didn't have a clue. <laughs> now, did your wife teach you how to sail? A little bit, uh, but we went racing a lot. And racing is actually one of the very best ways to learn how to handle a boat if you're going to go offshore cruising because 
you always are having to do something. You're rounding a mark. The spinnaker has got to be set. You've got to do it. The bad weather, it doesn't matter. We went from a lightning. Uh, we trailed that lightning over to Vancouver when we moved over there. From Toronto. From Toronto. It realized it was, no, it was a useless boat to have in Vancouver. So we bought a small cruising boat, 24 foot, and then used to uh, sail that. And then uh, later on, we bought an Arpege, which is a 29-foot Dufour half-tonner. Really good boat. And we raced that in Vancouver. Then I got moved back to Toronto, another job. And we raced it in Toronto on the lake a great deal. Then it became obsolete. The change from the CCA rule to the OR rule made it you know, untenable as a racing boat. And we wanted to go sailing. So we modified the boat a great deal and took off. Sailed down from Toronto, down uh, through the Oswego Canal, out to New York, up the East Coast, back down again. Got to be winter, went home, looked for a job, looked for a temporary job. My wife worked as an audiologist, and I'm a financial guy. I'd, I'd, I'll do anything for money. <laughs> so I did. And then the, you know, the next summer, we came back, picked up the boat, and just kept sailing. And so for years, that's what we did. We would work for six months, sail for six months. What was the name of the arpege? It's called Maestral. Maestral. That was the name of the boat when we bought it, and I liked the name, so we kept it. We sailed that boat for about uh, 60,000 miles. We did a lot, of, a lot of miles on it. We took it from there uh, all the way to Helsinki in Scotland and there, then back down through the Caribbean, out into the Pacific, back to Victoria, down to Cape Horn, back up, back up into the Aleutians. It was a great boat, a really good boat. And 29 feet today, people would look at that and say... Yeah. How small? I'd... Well, it's a strange trend that's been going on. Back when we were sailing that, that was in the ni- late 1970s, 1980s, 29 foot was a bit small, but not uncommon at all. You know, People went offshore cruising in 29, 35 feet. Now, no one would consider going offshore less than 45 feet, and sometimes it's 50 feet. Personally, I don't understand it uh, because uh, it costs them a great deal more money to buy the boat. The boat takes much more maintenance to work on. But, you know, our society has the idea that everything has to be bigger, newer, or it's not worth it. It doesn't work. Our only experience when we had this small boat was we did a lot more than the big boats did. Because a big boat goes out there and it anchors and it doesn't want to up-anchor a little boat. We can up-anchor and be gone somewhere else and go and look at the other island, come back again. And I think we saw a whole lot more and it was a lot more fun. I was just looking at the arpeggios before we started the interview and you can get one for a little over 10 grand now. Fix it yeah. up and go, go sail the world. And, and they were very well built. You know, it was the first production boat in the world. They, Michel Dufour uh, built about 2,000 of them and they're all around the world, particularly in, in the... Argentina, Brazil, you see a lot of them, Europe, uh, and a bunch ended up over here too. Mm. Yeah. But you did decide you wanted a little bit bigger boat when you wanted to do some high latitudes. Yeah. yeah we, when we got down to Cape Horn, we realized that there were a lot of people there who were going to Antarctica. And we thought, oh, wouldn't it be good to do that? Well, the, the arpege is a bit small for that. Yeah. Was it size or was it material? Uh, no, it was size. Um, though fiberglass isn't the best boat to take down there, but it, it, was, it was mostly size and capability. I mean, we did have, as an example, we had a, a wood-burning fire on board uh, the Maestral, the Arpege, to keep us warm in the things, but down there you need something a bit more reliable. You need a diesel heater, so you need more capability, and you need bigger fuel tanks, and uh, 
you'd need a longer range to be able to deal with it down there. So we looked around to try and find a boat, and we actually had heard of the boat we bought. It had just completed, uh, well, two years before that, had completed around the Americas trip mm. by a German guy. He had it built. He'd done the trip, so it was for sale. And we found it and went and bought it in Germany, picked it up there and did a lot, fair bit of work on it in Germany and then sailed it from Germany. But this is actually pretty stupid because we got on the boat in Germany with the idea we were going to go into Antarctica that year. Well, in fact, we did. But, I mean, there's too much of a steep learning curve. I didn't know enough about sailing such a big boat when I left. So it was a lot of learning, and I, I made some serious mistakes along the way, too. I mean, I didn't know what I was doing. So <laughs> but. Well, we'll dig into some of those. She's a very special boat, obviously, yeah. uh-huh. and Randall thanked her as yesterday for being part of the reason he was able to succeed in this journey. Did you know that she was so special when you found her? Yes. I had actually spent about nine months trying to find that boat. You know, I, I had a long list of characteristics that I wanted on the boat. You know, it had to be made out of aluminum, not steel. Uh, it had to have a reliable diesel engine. It had to have a lot of water capability and tankage for diesel. It had to have certain characteristics. I wanted a long keel boat. I didn't want a racing machine. I wanted a, an offshore boat. And Tanui met nearly all of those, character, those characteristics that I wanted. You know, it was a special boat. One off. It was very purposefully designed that boat, you know, for this sort of work. It was special for that. So you headed down to Antarctica immediately, and then you are headed up the west coast of South America, correct? No, it oh, was the east coast. The east coast. Okay, yeah, no mistake. The east coast of South. We, we America. were going to go up to Buenos Aires. Uh, it was the end of the season. Uh, we we had been in Antarctica. We were heading north. It was. Uh, early April, and we got caught in a very big storm that was coming up from the south. and uh, Over shallower waters. Over fairly shallow waters. The, the waters offshore of South America are you know, sometimes 300 meters deep, 400 me- miles offshore. So we were in the wrong place. We should have been further offshore or right along the coast, but not in the middle. I didn't know that. We ran before the storm for a couple of days, but we were getting tired, and we were steering, try, trying to hand steer the boat. Wrong. Should never have done that. We then decided to heave to. Well, we didn't have the mainsail up. We were only running on a jib, and the boat wouldn't heave to with only a jib. So we decided, well, okay, well, I just read a book about how you lie a hull. So I thought, oh, we'll do that. Well, we lay a hull and then got smacked around a lot. But then in the morning, uh, after a night of rolling around, the storm had actually gone. My wife, Corin, was still in a bunk down below. I went up on deck, was just walking around getting everything organized to get going again. I had a life harness on. The seas had gone way down, but I always walked with a life harness on. And I unclipped the life harness to step over the boom vang. And while I still had it in my hand, the boat was picked up by a rogue wave and was lifted absolutely upright and smashed straight down into the water, mashed straight into the water. The reason that I know that for sure, is because my wife left three holes in the headlining above the bunk, one for each knee and one for her head. So she was just driven out of a bunk and straight up into the ceiling or the roof, the headlining. I was thrown off the boat, ended up, when the boat came back up again, I was about 
150 or uh, 200 feet away, I can't tell actually how far. It was a very big wave, I know, because I used to do a lot of surfboard riding, and I know what a big wave feels like when you're inside it. It's full of air, and you, you have no idea you know, what's up or down. You're just rolling in this air. I finally popped to the surface, swung around, looked back, and could see this stricken boat you know, with a mast hanging over the side. What goes through your head when you are in the water <coughs> looking at your boat at sea? Actually, not much. You're, you're, you're now in survival mode. You know you've got to get back to the boat if you can. So I reached down to pull my boots off and found that my boots weren't on. They'd been ripped off in the wave. So I started to pretend I was swimming towards the boat. I say pretend because in wet weather gear, you're not doing anything, but I'm swimming anyway, and it's cold. And I knew I didn't have very much time to do anything. But I was very lucky because the boat comes back up, the mast's hanging over the side of the boat, so it's now acting like a great big drogue, so the boat now comes downwind to me. I'm downwind. My wife struggles up over the top of the engine. The engine boards have come off. She's got to come up. She's got blood all over her face, looks around and sees this yellow blob, you know, down, way downwind, grabs the life sling, which we've got on the back, throws it in the water. It drifts down even faster. I grab the life sling. She pulls it in. We've got a boarding ladder on the back. We, I climb up the boarding ladder, haul up the boarding ladder. I don't know how I got back on board. Yeah. And we sort of collapse in the cockpit because we are both so shell-shocked. Um, now I can start to think. Now, now in answer to your question, what are you thinking then? You know? Well, you, you're thinking how cold you are and you know, the boats and the disaster that you're in. I went down below, changed clothes, you know, got into a bunk, tried to get warm again. Uh, the boat was chaos. Uh, anyway, uh, we, a little while later I get up and lash the boat, the mast to the side of the boat so it won't keep banging. We live like that for 24 hours just while we're getting our heads back together again. Come back, pull all the rigging pins, let the mast go over the side, start the engine because we can motor. You know, one advantage, you've got a lot of diesel. Did she start right up? Well, no. The problem was to start the engine, I'm looking at the engine, and suddenly diesel is flying in the air. When the engine covers had come up and fallen back down again, they smashed the fuel pump, and it just broken it right off. Well, it so happened that we had a spare fuel pump, and it was in a tub which was in the forepeak. The forepeak is turned upside down, but the tub that's got the fuel pump in it is right there. I can reach it. <laughs> I take that off, grab the fuel pump, replace it, you know, start the engine, and the engine starts. Bang. Wow. So we, mo we start motoring towards the coast. And uh, while we're motoring, you know, we're sort of cleaning things up, and we, we cover about... Uh, 200 miles or something like that and then the wind turns against us so we have to put the drogue out to try and just hold ourselves and then the wind drops we pu pull the drogue out keep motoring and then the engine stops and the reason the engine stops is I, and I should have thought about it but I didn't is that when the boat turned upside down all the gunk that was in the bottom of the tanks got into the fuel system and it clogged the, the fuel system up and I ended up with water and gunk in the actual engine, so the engine stopped. 
by good fortune, at that point in time, we had an emergency VHF antenna, which we'd carried around for years on Maestral, and we still had it, so we put it on, turned the, the thing on, and about two hours later, we get a call coming over the VHF calling us, and it's the Argentinian Coast Guard who Corin had been talking to 24 hours ago, and they were worried that, you know, how were we? A lot of boats had been smashed around in this storm, and where were we? And, uh, I mean, talk about emotion, I mean, <laughs> because we could finally get out of this. So they sent a boat out to get us. A great big cutter happened to be coming by, towed us into land, into Port Orson. Then eventually we shipped the boat on a freighter, it took us three months to organize this, back to England and had it rebuilt. Then we could go sailing again. Wow. <laughs> Whew. That, that was. I mean, and you say, and then we could go sailing again nonchalantly. Were you both ready to head go off sailing again? Get back on the horse? I think so. Um, uh, we we had developed a lifestyle which we enjoyed, which was you know it was us. It, def it defined the two of us as to what we did, um, and we really liked the boat. One of the fortunate outcomes of this disaster was that we had to re-rig the boat. And a really good yacht designer in Leamington, which is where we had the boat, redesigned our mast for us and the, and the rigging and how it would work and made it into the boat that it is now. The mast before was you know, a crappy mast. I didn't know that, but it was. And he deliberately designed it. He said, look, when, if you put it in like this, you can get rolled over again and you won't break the mast. Mm. And His name was? Mike Pocock. Oh, Mike Pocock. And he, w he was the, uh, the Commodore of the OCC. He moment, was correct? the Commodore yes. of the OCC, yeah. Yeah, um, absolutely. And yeah. he's a great, he, he was a great designer of aluminum yachts. And, uh, and he was a, a, good a really nice person to know, I mean. Yeah. And he, he redesigned it in a, a yard in, in Leamington called Burthens, which is an old established yacht yard. In, in, they did all the work and they had to... Uh, re-weld the lifelines because they'd been smashed, straighten the rudder because, uh, the, not the rudder, the tiller because it had been bent and, and redo a whole lot of things. Thank goodness we had insurance, by the way, uh, which was very good because this cost a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that we were talking about last night, and I didn't know this, is metal boats. Tuning of the rig is much different because you have a much stiffer boat. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Fiberglass, well, first of all, old wooden boats... You know, they, they used to have actually, I wouldn't sort of call it slack rigging, but you couldn't tighten the rigging up too, too much or you'd bend the boat out of shape. Well, you can do the same thing with a fiberglass boat. If you, if you tighten the rigging up really tight, you can actually bend the boat. Well, aluminum boat, you can tighten all the rigging up so that you've got a perfectly solid mast boat all linked together, and you can tighten it rock hard because the metal won't bend. And it's a significant advantage. The mast never falls off. If you've ever looked at a lot of the big tall racing boats, the mast actually falls off. Not modern boats, not anymore. But the old boats did. The mast falls off because the rigging gets slack on the, and the downside. So it's good. Yeah. And then structurally, it's just one piece. It's just one great big webbing of boat, wire, mast, solid as a rock. Mm. Great stuff. <laughs> so what else did you learn from, from that knockdown? I mean, you talked about... You had just read a book about lying a hull. Well, I, I now often lecture on uh, heavy weather sailing, and I tell people about you know 
not that experience, but I told them the lessons learned. First of all, I think lying a hull is a stupid idea because you're totally exposed you know, to the beam seas. Heaving too, you should only do that up until the waves start looking like they're breaking because a breaking wave's got a lot of clout in it and can really damage the boat. Uh, what I should have done, heaving too was okay as long as the wind wasn't getting up above uh, maybe 30 knots. But it's not the wind that's the problem, it's the waves that are the problem. So what I should have done, I actually should have kept sailing. I shouldn't have stopped. I should have, in, in that boat, it's quite okay, now, now I know how to sail it and the way it's rigged up, I could have just kept going. And I, that boat will keep going down the wind in f up to 40 knots of wind. But if things are getting too uncomfortable, you know, the next thing to do would be to deploy a series drogue so that the stern is into the waves, the boat is just still moving with the wind and the waves. The Jordan series drogue with the m many little umbrellas. Many little uh, cones, 120-odd yes, cones, you're all stringed out the, strung out the back. Way better than any other device for holding a boat nice and comfortably still in the water. Uh, the boat runs forward uh, with the waves at about usually one and a half, two and a half knots. And, but the good thing is that the boat is now, everything's moving in the same direction. You know, the waves are going this way, the wind's going that way, the boat's going that way, the boat is designed to go that way. You don't want to be lying with the stern, uh, with the drogue off the bow, which is how it used to be. More like a sea anchor. Yeah, people used to use big parachute sea anchors off the bow. And people still do. Some people advocate for using sea anchors today. <clears throat> they do, and uh, the problem with the sea anchor is it's like anchoring. You know how if you go out there and you anchor and it's really blowing, the boat will hunt around the anchor backwards and forwards. Well, the same thing happens in the ocean. So the boat is now hunting around with these waves smacking the side of the boat as it tacks. And the sea anchor collapses or uncollapses. You know, it fills. The strain on everything is huge. You know, the loading. And the, one of the, and the shock loading. The shock loading. And, and what's being forced down is the rudder. Well, the most exposed part of the mechanical part on a boat is the rudder and the rudder stock. And as the parachute collapses, the boat goes back onto the rudder. Ah, not good. Now, having said that, many boats have survived uh, big storms with parachute anchors off the bow. It's just that there's a better way. <laughs> it's, not, it's not that it's bad. It's just there's better. <laughs> Experience you talk about as being important to your later sailing. Randall, too. He attempted first, got knocked down a couple times in the Southern Ocean, says he learned some things, it, particularly to keep sailing, yeah. to keep Moli, yeah, keep, Anui, her going. keep her moving yeah. through the, the high winds. Yeah, and he also told me, we were talking about this last night, he said he, he thought that in the first trip around, he sailed too slowly. You know, he, he would reduce sail too much. And so the boat was not performing well. So it was more subject to, you know, uh, pressure of the waves and being knocked down. This time he cranked up the sail or held on to sail longer. And uh, I did some maths. I know that I, when I went around, I was, it took 177 days to do the trip. And my average speed was 5.37 knots, I think. That was my average uh, speed running. 
Randall's for the trip that he did before he, ha he had to stop in Halifax, he had an average speed of about 5.7 knots. So he was now sailing it faster than I had sailed the boat. On his first trip, you know, he had a much slower speed, and it was annoying him that he was not getting a fast enough speed, and he couldn't understand why was it that I had a faster speed than him. And I think he came to the conclusion, no, I'm not, I'm not, the boat can do it. You know, it's, it's me that's slowing the boat down. <laughs> How much of this is particular to the boat? I mean, we talk about, you know, rules for drogues and how to handle heavy weather. Is it really getting to know the weather? Or is it getting to know the boat? In this case, it was getting to know the boat uh, and, and understanding waves and weather. You know, you, so both? Uh, uh, both of it, absolutely. These lessons learned were, although they could be generalized to all boats, all sailing boats, they're very particular to that boat. You know, that's what Randall and I were sailing, you know, that boat. So you have to learn that boat very well. But uh, if I was on another boat, you know, a fiberglass boat, 45 feet or something like that, and I was in a big sea, I'd have the same tactics, the same ideas. I'd try to keep the boat moving and driving. But for that, you have to have a very good self, some very good self-steering gear, you know, a monitor or whatever you've got, and it has to be good. And the boat has to be able to do it. Each boat takes a bit of a learning. This is an aside, but I have a curiosity that I have. Randall talks about Monty, his, <laughs> his self-steering gear. I assume it's the same monitor that you sailed yeah. with. Did you have a name for it? Was called, mine was called Albert. And the reason for Albert is when I used to work, the lawyer of the company I worked for, his name was Albert. And Albert kept us on the straight and narrow. So that's... <laughs> <laughs> the lawyer keeping you on the straight and narrow. That's great. Well, let's get to your solo circumnavigation, which I believe you did in... Uh, 2001, um, two. One, two. Okay, yep. 2001, two. And you were the very first circumnavigator to leave from the west coast of Canada and do a solo circumnavigation. Actually, correct? from anywhere in North America. From anywhere in North America. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. The guy who did it before me, by the way, was a guy called Dodge Morgan. He, he's an East Coast guy. And he had a um, boat specifically built by Hoods to do, it was a 56-footer, to make a solo non-stop circumnavigation out of the East Coast, Maine somewhere. Anyway, uh, he, uh, the self-steering packed up and he had to stop in Bermuda. So he did, in fact, did do a non-stop solo circumnavigation, Bermuda, Bermuda, but not North Got America. It. Not North America. Technicality, but there you go. There you go. <laughs> well, still a first. Yeah. What is it that attracts you about solo circumnavigation? Well, this is the story. Um, Corin and I, my, my wife's name is Corin, had done a lot of sailing, and in the late 90s, 1990s, I had done a trip where I had sailed the boat solo from England down to the Falklands, and Corin met me in the Falklands. We sailed to South Georgia, spent seven weeks in South Georgia, then we sailed to South Africa, left the boat there. I came back the next year, sailed the boat from there to Tasmania. Corin joined me in Tasmania and we enjoyed Christmas there. That was 2000, that was the 
the changeover. And then from there I sailed solo from Tasmania back up to England again. By then I was uh, 61 or something like that years old. And I thought that, you know, while I was young, <laughs> if you could call that young, but I was very fit, you know, while I was young and fit, it would be fun to try and do uh, a solo non-stop circumnavigation. And it had never been done from the West Coast uh, before, so I, I sailed it back over to, boat over to uh, the East Coast, trucked it back to Victoria, and set off to do that solo non-stop to see if I could do it. So you actually made that trip quite a bit faster than you expected to. I did. Yeah, I, I thought it'd take about 210 days, uh, but it took me 177 days. I got, I got a bit lucky a couple of times, and I was lucky enough to be able to go south a long way. I, in the Southern Ocean, yeah. I, I, I was down around uh, 47 south for a lot of the trip. As opposed to, you know, at around four, at 40, I would have had to sail another couple of thousand miles. And what allowed you to get closer to Antarctica um, in that way? Just the weather. The just, weather. Just the weather. The lows were south and the, the boat, and I just pushed it, you know. Do you have more danger of ice down at that latitude? In some parts of the Southern Ocean. The ice in the Southern Ocean comes from the Weddell Sea, which is the, the sea that's on the western side of the... Uh, Antarctic Peninsula, and great big pieces of it break off. It's a big glacier that's coming down. They break off in big tabular icebergs. I, I sailed past one when I was on that trip and took a picture of it, and it, I could measure it on the radar, and it was six miles by 12 miles, the, the two sides I could wow. see. Wow. So I sailed up the side of it. I mean, it's high, too. It, it, I don't know how high it is, but it's probably you know, 50 feet or 60 feet high. I, mean, I don't really know how high it is. And uh, so I was a bit worried about those bits of ice, that sort of thing. But by the time you get to about halfway across the Indian Ocean or towards Australia, the ice is all gone. It's melted, collapsed, done something. I don't know what. Then, and Randall had the same problem, the only way of seeing the ice is on radar. Mm-hmm. Well, little bits don't come up so easily. But at least down in the Southern Ocean, there are only big bits, not little bits, like there is in the high, Ar- and, uh, high uh, Arctic. So, anyway. Which raises in my mind the question of sleep, which Randall talked uh, and wrote about quite a bit on his trip. What are the logistics of sleeping when you're single-handed? Uh, well, sometimes you don't go to sleep. You just, you can't. You have to stay focused. But sometimes you learn how to just sleep for 20 minutes and then wake up. And you use alarm clocks or just do it. But sometimes when it's, you know, everything's good, you know, I, I would sleep for eight or nine hours. Just to heck with it. The boat's doing fine. The weather's no, nothing's going wrong. Today, uh, also with AIS, which I didn't have but, you know, is now readily available, all the ships have got AIS, great big alarm fantastic you know i mean it's a safety device it's amazing you know and radar is now much more efficient than it used to be just between 2001 and 20 years later today in randall's trip technology ais but communication technology he was able to send video How, how does that change somebody's experience well it that's interesting question because uh randall was in constant contact with the world. 
he had the good sense to not give out his email address to very many people. He and I talked by, by email, but uh, you know, I was I was not I was instructed not to give his email address to anybody else. And Joe had his email address, his wife, but not a lot of other people. But he could talk and receive information. I mean, he was, had access. I don't know whether he had access. I guess it was the internet because he could download all kinds of information that, when he needed it. Yeah, I don't think he could surf the web, but he could no. certainly get a hold of. He could bring content. down pictures and uh, not pictures, but I mean maps, uh, weather maps, and that sort of thing, and grid files. The first trip I did, the earlier one, you know, where I did a lot of it, I only had uh, sail mail. I could only send little clips of text to my wife, you know, once a day, you know. And, in order to save space, I'd leave out all the vowels. So you'd, you'd just type a message there with vowels. Occasionally, you put a space in just to keep it going. On the next trip, I used Winlink, and I could send text messages, but even then, you had to keep them very small. Randall was able to communicate marvelously, and he could write. He's such a good writer. Yeah. I mean, his choice of words. I mean, uh, mine looked just boring accounts of what happened. You know, Randall could write eloquently about the whole expression, so everybody enjoyed his blog immensely. It is a, it is a very different experience. It's continuing to change as connection gets easier and easier with people. Being I suppose there. so. It it changes the dynamic of what you're feeling, though. I mean, I he enjoyed writing the blog. I mean, he, he's a guy that likes to write and enjoy it. And I, I, I can understand that. You, you want to have something that you're doing when you're on board the boat that isn't about, I mean, it is about the boat, obviously, but it's not fixing the boat, sailing the boat. It's something that you can apply your mind to doing. In the same way he taught himself and used or upgraded his skill to use celestial navigation. That was th his thing. Uh, I read a lot of books. Uh, that was my way out of it. But I also enjoyed writing. But I had no ability to send videos or anything like that. I mean, it's just incredible. I think it's so interesting in terms of today w with so many people heading off cruising and sharing their stories, which is wonderful for us armchair sailors who are, who are on land to be able to to read those stories. But it gets to my mind to the question of, how much am I doing this for me and how much am I doing this to share with others or say, look at me? I think it's a very legitimate question. Let me just give you the contrast. When Karin and I first started sailing in offshore, this is in the late 70s, our communication was by letters, handwritten letters. And we didn't have any ability to type anything. So we would make a landfall in the Azores or something like that. And the first thing you do is rush off to the post office and see if you've got any letters and then write some letters back. Um, then later on, we used, used to create audio tapes and the tourists would sit down and dictate, you know, tell a story about where we'd been, send the tape back to a friend in Victoria who'd make duplicates of it and then hand it around amongst a few friends. Well, now it's gone to where it's gone. and The urge is there to share, though, no matter what. I mean, it's gotten easier to share. But, I mean, so what I'm hearing is, in, in many ways, it, there's always this desire to share with people. Well, there is. Well, your, your friends want to know, you know, where are you and what are you doing? And mankind always likes to record what he's done. You know, the, yeah. we, we like our histories and we keep it. Um, Sometimes, though, I think it's now 
it goes overboard. And it's mostly because of social media. People are used to the idea of having pictures. They take pictures of themselves all the time and send them to everybody so that people can say, oh, look at the lovely picture. But everybody didn't need a picture of you. Know, I don't need a picture of you every morning. You know, I, I just don't. <laughs> and, uh, but I'll stop sending them, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think it's, it's, it's getting warped. A lot of people now spend so much time writing blogs and they, they are trying to generate traffic onto their blog site uh, by writing about not only just their own experiences and the sea of their own, they want to write about things so that they look terribly smart and clever and, and everybody thinks how marvelous they are and they get more people. And I think this is, uh, it, it, I mean, it's fine if that's how you like, but it's, it's not about sailing anymore. It's about, it's trying to impress people. Some um, of us just just start podcasts. But, uh, <laughs> no, but uh, no, I love you were quoted in an article in the paper yesterday, and it was the final quote in the piece saying, "20 years from now, Randall will look back." I'm paraphrasing here, and realize he did this for himself. And I, that's what I hear you say. Yeah, I, 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 I I'm, I'm sure of that. Or I could rephrase that slightly and say, his most enjoyable memory of the of his trip will be the ocean the birds and the satisfaction of saying i achieved that i pushed the envelope i i made it happen it was my skill that did it and he can just say that quietly to himself he, he won't bother talking about it to people it, that it's just an internal thing that he'll enjoy most it's not to say he doesn't deserve all the kudos and the praise he's getting. He absolutely does. But that will be, later on, that will be less important to him. Just as an aside, peop other people that go offshore sailing, they know, if they've been doing it for a while, you come back home and everybody says, oh, you're back. Where you been? Oh, we sailed around the Pacific. Oh, great. That's it. That's all they want to know. Because now they want to tell you about what they've been doing and what the world is. People are not that interested <laughs> beyond beyond the a casual thing because it's not their world. Now, in the case of Randall and that sort of thing, everybody got really wrapped up in his trip, and and it was great. It is. It's it's fantastic. But in a month's time, when people see Randall you know, and talk to him, they they're going to talk about what's happening in their world and the world that he's in. Then the rest of it fades. It's, you're only a celebrity for about 24 hours these days. I mean, it doesn't last that long. But he will always have that. He will have it. And he'll forever sort of quietly rub it like the Aladdin's lamp, and he'll nurture it a little bit in his head, and it'll just sit there, and uh, it, 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 it will define himself to himself. And I hear you saying that this is something that you hold on to as well. Yeah. Yeah, I don't... Uh, yeah, that's right. I'm in a, only for, your, for yourself. Yeah, just for myself. Yeah. 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 Well, it, yeah. I mean, some people will go in, go offshore racing in boats, and they do it to win. Yeah. You know, they're they're yeah. they're competing, they're racing, they're doing something like that. Some people go offshore to make some statement or some point. But Randall didn't do it for those reasons. He just did it because it was. Can I do this? Well, maybe I can. Well, all right, I'll try. And he did. <laughs> and so that's why. Is there anything that I haven't asked that you'd like to talk about? It's, it's funny, you know, San Francisco, 
is a huge boating center. There are a lot of yachts in San Francisco Harbor. But there's not a lot of places you can go to in San Francisco in a yacht. First of all, I don't know a lot about San Francisco, but I know at one point in time we were trying to plan a sort of send-off for Randall before he left, and we ended up in Angel Island. It's one of the only, one of the few natural anchorages inside San Francisco Harbor. So we went there. It was great, fantastic. But San Francisco doesn't seem to generate the same offshore uh, interest that you can find in Maine or in Victoria or I live because we got all the Pacific Northwest. So people don't naturally gravitate from owning a boat to racing to going offshore. They do a lot of racing in, in San Francisco. Some of the best US racing boats are all here in San Francisco. But there's not the same, not the same availability of cruising destinations, so it doesn't happen as much. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. And it brings us back to two questions. Oh, one question I meant to ask, because this is ostensibly a podcast about sailing in San Francisco. You've sailed into Golden Gate at least a couple times, yeah. correct? Mm. Tell us about those well, experiences uh, of coming in. Well, one, the first time I was uh, in, in Maestral, our 29-footer, and we sailed down the coast, and so we went into Bodega, which is just up the coast, yeah. great anchorage, and then we went into Sausalito, which is a, you know, a good anchorage, and then we left from Sausalito and went south. There wasn't, there's nowhere else. If you're in Sausalito and you're a cruise, offshore cruising boat and you've arrived, why, there's nowhere else to go inside San Francisco Harbor. I mean, where are you going? You know, you don't know it, and so you didn't. The second time, I was delivering, helping a guy deliver a great big maxi boat down here, and we sailed down, sailed in. I got off, got on the... Funnily enough, I got off the boat. We couldn't find any customs guys to check us in or anything, so we got on the railway line, the BART, and got it to the airport and left. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody even knew we'd arrived or left. <laughs> That was a while ago. I could say it. <laughs> I think you're right that there are fewer places uh, to gunk hole in San Francisco Bay. But I think part of it is also just a, a lack of awareness or a, a lack of marketing, a lack of uh, facilities. There, there are more places than people know about. And I'm wondering if that'll ever change. Well... It, it's interesting. Yeah, one thing that uh, Rick uh, Rick Whiting, who you might have met yesterday, yeah, sure. Rick is the Ocean Cruising Club Regional Rear Commodore for California. He and I have spoken about you know, how come there are not so much more cruising in San Francisco Bay or more cruisers in San yeah. Francisco Bay. And he quotes the things that we just spoke about there. But the fact that Randall just did this and people in the yachting community here in San Francisco will all take note you know, everybody will know about it, or certainly will soon, and they'll say, oh, look at that. Some guy from San Francisco did that. Well, I don't have an ambition to do that, but, you know, Mavis, why don't we think about sailing, uh, getting the boat ready and going off somewhere? So these things tend to get a life of their own. So th this may trigger a uh, increase in offshore sailing from San Francisco. I sure hope so. <laughs> and Randall himself is a great proponent of adventurous sailing within San Francisco Bay. If anybody wants to go back and listen to the very first interview I did with Randall, which is one of the early episodes of this podcast, it was while he was in the Southern Ocean, uh, he talks about adventures he's had leaving his boat or 
anchoring somewhere and doing hikes. So that's, it's a wonderful place to kind of combine ocean and land adventures. Well, that's true. I, I, th there is there, but it's not like if I wanted, if, uh, no, two, two points to make. You're, where I live in Victoria, up there, there are cruising guides stacks of them written maybe six of them we've written about cruising in the puget sound the pacific northwest etc i'll bet you there's no cruising guide for cruising in san francisco there are few and far between they, right. do, they do exist they but do exist. They're, they're hard to come by uh, the other interesting thing is san francisco is a i understand is a hotbed for small boats single-handed sailing every year there's a race single-handed yes. race from here to hawaii well that's the only one i know of in the world there aren't other, no, there's the Ostar, which is out of England and races from England across to Maine. But San Francisco has got a lot of, must have, I know they do have, a lot of pretty talented, single-handed, small boat sailors. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, maybe that's the next project. We can convince Randall to start uh, a, a, a cruising guide to San Francisco, a single-handed style. <laughs> we'll have to talk to him about that. Well, one thing that might come out of this is you'll find that some single-handed guys that have got, you know, the boats, they raced out to Pacific, and they're going to say, look what Randall did. Damn, why don't we just go off and do some more cruising? And we'll just keep going from Hawaii, and we'll head north and come up to Pacific Northwest, or we'll go south, one or the other. Well, I know he's been an inspiration, at least to my daughters who've been following him. We need to update Randall, they would say every day as we <laughs> mark him on the map. Um, but you are just as much in, as an inspiration with all the sailing you've done, and we're obviously an inspiration to Randall. So, yeah, maybe so. Tony, thank you so much. This has been a joy for me to <laughs> talk to you. You're very welcome. Um, and hopefully we'll do it again soon. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Cheers. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. As someone recently pointed out to me, Tony and Randall are in a very exclusive club, having sailed solo nonstop around the world. I did a quick search online, and I think there are only a bit more than two dozen people who have ever done that. With all the talk about Randall in this episode, you may be wondering when I'll have him back to talk about his successful completion of his trip. And no doubt I'm definitely anxious to have him on the show again to talk about that. But I thought I'd give him some time and space, both because I'm sure he's being swamped right now with people wanting to talk to him, and because I want to give him some time to reflect a little bit on his accomplishment before I go and start grilling him with questions about it. Anyway, that's the show for this week. Thanks again for listening. If you're enjoying the Out the Gate podcast, tell your friends about it. And go and leave a comment or rate the show on Apple Podcasts. I'm Ben Shaw, host and producer of the show. Until next time, smooth sailing.